Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today we're dangerously likely to talk about global affairs. Let's go about the vote with this week's headlines. So as of Tuesday of this week, the Israel-Palestinian conflict has reached its eighth day of violence so far. Uh, 212 Palestinians have been killed, including 61 children. In Israel, Hamas has fired more than 3,300 rockets and have killed about 10 people. Um, further unrest in the West Bank has led to Israeli forces and settlers killing uh, at least 20 Palestinians that we know of so far. This is an ongoing story, and we want to keep everyone updated with what has happened since our last pod. So far, President Biden has not taken a firm stance on a ceasefire and continued to support Israel's right to defend itself to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. However, reports are coming out today that Biden took a much firmer stance against Israel's actions, telling Netanyahu that Israel can only, can only continue to do what it's doing for so long, essentially putting a time limit on U.S. diplomatic support, even as European foreign ministers overwhelmingly have called for a ceasefire. Terrell, there's a lot that has happened this week. This is currently one of the biggest stories in the world at the moment, and Israel's attacks have targeted buildings such as the media building that housed the Associated Press and other media outlets, which I think is just absolutely outrageous. Um, of course, Israel uh, has claimed that they were targeting Hamas and Hamas was in the building. Um, and there have also been a lot of calls from Democratic members of Congress calling for Biden to take a stronger approach to Israel as more innocent civilians and children continue to be killed by Israel's military. Um I just want to put it out to our viewers that this issue spans hundreds of years, especially over the last century. And I do suggest uh, going and doing a little bit of research if you want to fully understand why this issue is so complicated. But really, extremists on both sides um, of the aisle here are what's driving the the global debate around this conflict. Um, on Israel's side, you have a prime minister who is currently trying to defend himself from multiple corruption charges and is also just a lot more farther right wing um, than what I think has really been um, talked about in American media. And you also have far right protesters who um, always seem to exacerbate the um, um, violence and the problems that Israel in Palestine has. Mm -hmm. And obviously like two state solution is something we want, but um, the violence over the past few days is, is you just kind of have to wonder about proportion hmm. um, for what's going on right now. Hamas has obviously fired a lot of rockets at Israel, but Israel is just taking out buildings, including the media building and and the Gaza Strip, like these people don't have anywhere to go. It's one of the most densely populated places, and six one children have died. Like, how much is too much? When does it become war crimes? And why hasn't Joe Biden done more to call for a ceasefire? Like, it doesn't matter that they're our ally. We can we can still be allies and call out some of the bullshit that's happening. But anyways, Terrell, I want to get um, your take on this before we move on. So I did a quick look on this because I, I think you you hit on a very good point of proportion. Um, and I did a quick search for our listeners. So if someone wants to come and correct my numbers, please let me know. But in the fiscal year of 2019, the U.S. provided $3.8 billion in foreign military aid to Israel. Yeah. $3.8 billion. Israel also benefited from about $8 billion of loan guarantees. Also from the United States. So when we when we talk about proportion, when we when Israel uses the argument that they are under attack, which they are legitimately, your premise and your statement on proportion, I think, matters more. Um, just as you mentioned, it it's called the Iron Dome for a reason. Mm -hmm. It is rare that you hear a missile fire, fired from the West Bank. Um, or the strip or the strip is is successful in reaching its target because they have such a great and well invested in system for defense because they get so much money from our country specifically versus uh, a area that 
is home to innocent civilians who aren't actively a part of the conflict, but are being drawn in because there is a a terrorist group there that threatens other individuals. Proportion, I think, matters so much to this argument, and I'm I'm very glad, and like we talked about off air, that we our generation specifically has kind of lifted the veil, if you will. We've moved away from this blind understanding that Israel is a a state that is justified in every action. And we're willing to take a more honest look at what is the human toll? What are the, the arguments from both sides and where are there potential or spaces for a table to be set and a, an agreement to be had. So I don't know if I'm hitting on the question perfectly, but I really appreciate and, and like the fact that we're speaking to this from a proportion standpoint, because there is a clear advantage, if you will, for one side of this conflict. Yeah. I mean, again, I like, like Hamas as a terrorist organization, they, they want Israel to not be in existence at all. And, and, and I'm not going to say, I'm going to sit here and say that I believe in Israel. I, I think it, I think it should be there, but you know, the way that they have responded to this, I think is just the power dynamics are just so at play here. And it's just so blatantly obvious to see. And I guess what I mean by that is like, I have no problem with any country when they get a rocket thrown at them from somewhere to uh, respond uh, with how it thinks it should should be. But uh, there comes to a point where it's too much. And, and the people that live in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and these Palestinians, they, they don't control Hamas. Mm-hmm. And neither does the Palestinian Authority. They don't control Hamas. And I just don't see how... It's just hard. It's hard to justify Israel's actions. Like, like Hamas is known for using human shields, and that's what they're doing here. But it's it's like okay, like if they're known for doing that, maybe you just don't fire that one rocket that could kill five kids. Like we can we can decide not to like limit the casualties as much as possible. We can decide not to shoot a rocket sometimes. Like. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's obviously we don't have all the intelligence here that maybe Israel has and whatnot, but it just seems like some of the actions they are taking are a little bit morally irreprehensible. And again, like every country has the right to defend itself. I'm not arguing that. I'm not arguing against Israel at all. I, I think Israel should be there. I just think that like I said earlier, extremists on both sides are really um, defining what the conversation is around this. Yeah. And I, I find it interesting, too, that we are holding the administration's feet to the fire um, for not calling for a ceasefire, for not being more active in this role, with the onus and the understanding that from a diplomatic standpoint, from a a military standpoint, it is a tough call for the administration not to give any excuses, Um, especially with the way we have built up and and developed the understanding of Israel's relationship for us militarily in the Middle East, calling out an ally always leads to some type of frosty relationship. And I, I think the administration also recognizes that, and we can't ignore, Joe Biden was a part of the Obama administration that is known for having one of one of the worst historical relationships with Israel, specifically because of Prime Minister Netanyahu um, and his just blatant disrespect of President Obama at the time, only to warm up to President, former President. I don't like calling me that. Only to warm up to Donald Trump later. <laughs> so you have this administration weighing these two odds of how how do we show up appropriately while also making sure that that relationship stays where it is, especially when we're giving them as much money as we do. Um, but I, I, I think now is the time that we, we as a people call out and say that we value 
a two-state solution. We value a ceasefire. We value some form, again, I'll, I'll use the metaphor of coming to a table that feels equitable, that feels beneficial. And it the veil or the excuse of military strategy or diplomacy or um, just overall friendliness is not enough anymore. And And I think I appreciate that the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party is speaking out and really pushing for President Biden to step up and say something more. But I think we all need to take a second and say that the historic principle and the historic um, policy as it relates to Israel for the U.S. needs to be adapted in a way that truly makes the table able or the table willing and able for both parties to come and have a robust conversation about how we we might not reach an end, but how we reach some type of next um, level that isn't this egregious um, aggression. I was reading about one last thing about this topic. I was reading a, uh, uh, about. Um, the reports that we got today from, um, I believe it was the New York Times, uh, that t- that basically was talking about how Joe Biden privately was telling Netanyahu, like, mm-hmm. like, hey, we got to stop this, like taking a harder stance. And I think what's like really the dynamic, if we're talking explicitly politics here, the dynamic of that is really interesting to me because... Um, It's not usually the case. Actually, I don't know if it has been in American history where you have a Congress who is, is feeling is, who is actually taking a stance against something that Israel is doing. Um, but the administration is the one kind of playing like the good cop, you know, Mm -hmm. um, they're the one that's giving diplomatic cover, but there's a time limit. Um, and, like we can only do this for so long and it, it kind of makes me wonder like like is there actual things politically that the administration can leverage because of that kind of weird relationship that's happening but i also kind of thought about that too and calling for a ceasefire to me so innocent lives don't get hurt publicly i just don't think is that big of a deal but i could be very wrong with the history and whatnot i don't know i just don't know if it's that hard to say like kids dying is bad well, let's not forget, there's a solid chance that Benjamin Netanyahu will not be prime minister yeah, any longer. that's true. Granted, they still haven't formed a government, so who's to say? Who's to say? But it, it's we also have to like realize that the Palestinian Authority is also kind of in, this, in a similar situation. Not that they can't form a government, but they've delayed elections again. It's been the same people in charge since like 2007, mm-hmm. and... If they called for elections, like there's probably some weird power dynamics with Hamas and what the Palestinian Authority does. And it's just both the leaders of both sides right now are just not in a the countries are not in an organized place to actually get something done. And now we have violence erupt again. And again, I don't want to I really I I listen to podcasts and stuff and I, I hear Israel being critiqued, like their decisions about this being critiqued by like Democrats and whatnot. And then there's always like this, this criticism, whether it's on Twitter or just from Republicans or whatnot of being like anti-Semitic because you criticize Israel. Mm -hmm. But I just want to get something straight here. Like we're criticizing a decision Israel made, not, not, we're not criticizing their existence. The government of Israel. I I do agree that there needs to be a a distinction. You can criticize the government of Israel. The United States of America and still believe that America is the land of the free and the brave and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm not anti-American because I didn't like, I don't know, the previous administration. Yeah, or the current administration. I mean, I, I think, again, I, I speak to that equitable table, right? You can't expect both parties to show up if having, if even saying or disagreeing with the um, the government makes it seem like you don't believe that they should exist. That's not that's not fair. That's not reasonable. That's not to say that there aren't actors out there who don't believe that Israel or who believe that Israel shouldn't exist. But there needs to be some onus that there is a separation to say Prime Minister Ben Benjamin Netanyahu has made some egregious decisions that have put Israelis at harm, that have put 
his government at harm, and those decisions deserve to be critiqued, especially as he tries to grapple with and hold on to power while going through multiple corruption scandals. That is a fair statement to say. That's not saying I don't think Israel should um, exist or be around. Yeah, Terrell, I 100% agree with you. Anyways, moving on. There's been kind of one piece of news that kind of popped up a few days ago, um, but it's been slightly under the radar this week for obvious reasons with Israel and Palestine um, coming to a head, that conflict coming to a head. Um, The Supreme Court will hear Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is a challenge to Mississippi's law that makes nearly all abortions illegal after the 15th week of pregnancy. Uh, This will be the first full abortion case the court will hear since Justice Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation nearly eight months ago. Um, The court is focusing its argument on the question of whether, and in quotes, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. In the past, the court has held that an abortion patient gets to make the final decision to, in quotes, terminate her pregnancy before viability. The Mississippi law applies even before the fetus is viable, going directly against the court's ruling. On the journey to the Supreme Court, this case was struck down by a conservative federal appeals court. Even though the judge is against abortion, he ruled with the Supreme Court's precedent that, quote, establishes viability as the governing constitutional standard. Terrell, I know you usually follow the court's activities. That being said, um, how worried do you think we should be about this case? Extremely. (laughs) Well, that's... that's, uh, (laughs) Um... No one believed Kavanaugh when he stood up and said um, that Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. Why didn't we believe it? Because he had literally argued in other cases why he felt Roe v. Wade was a aggressive step beyond the role of the Supreme Court at the time. And if there was ever an opportunity, the Supreme Court should really evaluate and see if they were doing the right thing in making that that role all that to say i'm petrified because because why would we have a role why would we have a space where abortion needs to have this much of a focus and this much of a a fight yeah i'm pretty concerned about this and i think we all should be it got covered up a little bit and of course the justices won't hear it for a while but i mean we can't rely on like Chief Justice John Roberts to 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 vote on the on the liberal side of the justices. Um, well, I mean, like maybe he does, but that doesn't mean that we'll win because it's a sixty three court right now. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, like all the conservative justice members, including John Roberts, are kind of against abortion or have signaled that way in the past. And it's just very. Obviously, we need to we need to to show support. We need to fight against what possibly could be a really terrible ruling for this country. Um, and we need I don't know what to say, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not an easy thing to talk about. I, it's well, it, it sucks because because you have this ruling could define like it's just so it's such a known fact these days that like. If, if we provide safe and legal abortions, like, there won't be as many abortions. Like, people don't just go and make that decision every day. Like, that's just not really how it works. And it's actually more dangerous for, for mothers and stuff when you, don't, when you don't have those available or accessible. And that, this is just so bad shit to me. It's yep. so bad shit. Like, I don't understand why... why this is the issue that people want to like die on. Like what, what women choose what to do with their bodies. I am so frustrated with this conversation because for a party that believes government should have no role in anything for a party that believes smaller government matters. It frustrates me that that same party feels that their religious beliefs should dictate everything we do in our country because it just, it, it's not fair. I don't I don't give a damn whether you believe that life starts at conception. I don't give a damn whether you believe that girls and women should have a better understanding of their body so they should know not to have sex. Like fuck off in the simplest way possible because there are so many other 
decisions and health issues and concerns that play into an abortion and you are never in the room with them. You never understand what is going on and it's angering and frustrating and I I'm worried and I'm fearful because I do think that one of the biggest fears when even President Obama was stepping away and Mitch McConnell held a Supreme Court seat hostage for an election was that something like this could happen. And when we're fighting a front on voting rights, when we're fighting a front on um, police brutality, when we're fighting a front on all of these core issues, I I find and am very frustrated that the party of limited government decided that their voice matters more than everyone else's. Well, they always do. I mean, just yeah, think yeah. about the election. The big lie is prevailing in the party that that says that they're for small government. I didn't know small government meant controlling women's bodies. Hmm. That's it. (laughs) But it's fun being two guys talking about this issue, of course, because that's all that's in Congress anyway, is a bunch of guys telling each other, oh, this makes the most sense. I still stand by the idea that instead of um, all the egregious things that they've been saying for women, if they were to get an abortion... The owner should fall on the male. If a female decides she needs an abortion for whatever reason, the guy gets the bill. If if adoption has to be a conversation, um, the guy is the one who deals with all the processes. Like really make men understand the burden and the weight that women take on when they are um, pregnant with a child. And and stop allowing them to have this cognitive dissonance to say, oh, well, it's not that bad or uh, that's just their role. Like a woman's role in society is more than being a caregiver and a, a, a birther. Sorry, anger. No, I, anger over here, too. I, it's just a, it's just such a frustrating topic. It's so frustrating. It's like these people don't even like want to have a conversation about it. Because I don't know if the issue is that black and white, to be honest. I don't know if it is. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of different scenarios and a lot of different um, um, policy choices and whatnot that can affect this. And, I, you know, you just can't – you can't predict what's going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, it's like, okay, if you don't agree with it, let's have a conversation. And instead of having a conversation, we're basically making it like criminally – like we're making it illegal in some states for for women to like basically even think about an abortion. Yeah. But it's like it's like come on like that just makes it worse for the for the for the women. That makes it worse for our society. Mhm. That's what it that's what it does. So I just hoping for the best and uh protest uh when you can. I think is the way to go at the moment. So I'm going to go off the script a little bit, Caleb. Um, and I really appreciate the story that we led with. Off the script? We don't use a script here. I mean, off the script is in our normal structure, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate our first story and and the fact that we're talking about things outside of the U.S., right? right? But we can't help but note that Israel is an ally. It is a strategic partner militarily. Um, As we highlighted in our conversation, there's a lot of money that goes into Israel. So, of course, there is a focus um, from our country to look at what is happening and what is occurring in Israel. But what I struggle with, and we've talked about this offline as well, is the fact that when we we hear about world news, um, if you watch ABC World News Tonight or CNN, that's supposed to be more globalized. Um, you don't actually hear about world news unless it's something that follows the ambulance chaser. It's, it's the, oh, there was a explosion here, or there was a terrorist attack in France. There were these things. Mm-hmm. So I want to go off the script and, and really talk about what's happening in the globe and talk about things that 
we might not necessarily think matter in this moment, but globally, and especially in a globalized world like we live now, they will have implications on our way of life. If that's okay with you, of course. I think you should go above the fold and off the script. Ah, I like that. Thank you. So I want to start um, with Lebanon and the fact that they're currently in free fall. So I don't know if you remember, but back in August of 2020, there was a huge explosion in Beirut. Um, Are you saying that was in 2020? That was in 2020. <laughs> wow, I could have sworn that was like maybe two years ago. I thought that was pre-pandemic. I mean, sure. if you remember correctly, 2020 was actually like six years crammed into one. So yeah. that's fair. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. But that single explosion um, really sparked a lot of issues for Lebanon, specifically their government resigned in in response to the explosion and the the outcome and the damage that was caused and all of the other things that came out from the investigation and because of the explosion Lebanon has been faced with a growing debt so much so that one of their largest energy providers someone call me out if i get this wrong but car powership um is working on and has already cut off electricity to about a fourth of the country after an 18-month past due um, amount of $100 million. With wow. their government in free fall, them having a acting prime minister, if you will, because there hasn't been an opportunity to form a government, there are continual struggles to identify um, how they will pay this amount, how they will um, even build out a budget. As we're talking about financial crises, if you move not too far over to the continent of Africa, we see that there are multiple countries that are also facing some really difficult hardships following COVID-19. A lot of African countries recognizing that they will be unable to pay for the first time um, investments made to them by the IMF to cover their debts. Um, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, um, has called has called for major reforms in the way that these countries are given financial access and also how they're able to pay it back. Um, Sudan, for example, have, has asked the French government to waive their um, payments for interest and and assistance that they've received and the French government granted it. But we're recognizing that all of the issues that we feared of happening in COVID specifically to the U.S. is happening globally. There There is real concerns for the global economy that a recession could be on the horizon, maybe not in our more developed countries that we speak of like France, the U.K., um, America, but in the countries that support and are the backbones to investments and future growth for those countries. So I'm not entirely certain I have a great question for you in regards to those stories, more so just an update for our listeners to be aware of what's happening. But one question I do have for you, Caleb, is uh, am I missing the mark or are these conversations that we do need to be having in our country of knowing what's happening when it's not just a terrorist attack or a military partner in distress, really knowing that there are global struggles and there are places where administrations could be showing up. I don't think you're missing the mark here, Terrell. I think that our news, and I don't know if it's necessarily wrong, um, but our news is focused primarily on uh, uh, America mm -hmm. and things that affect us. Like, remember... Um, a few months ago, and this is this is still a thing. Um, just to remind everybody, um, in Burma slash Myanmar, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, uh, the coup, the military took over, and uh, they've killed a lot of uh, civilians since then. The country is in protest, and it's also kind of in ruin because of this. Um, that wasn't really. I mean, it was on it was on uh, newspapers and stuff in America, but it wasn't. It did not get as much attention as, like, say, the Israeli-Palestinian yeah. conflict is. What and was even happening at that point in time? I don't remember. Exactly. Yeah. Like, 
Like, in, in, should is, Israel and Palestinian get a lot of news time? Yeah, I think so. I think it's important that we know what's going on there. And I'm not saying anything less than that. I, but I think there are organizations that do focus on world. And I think, I think what's interesting about that is I have a feeling that not a lot of people, not as many people are as interested in the world as they are about what's happening in the U.S., and I, I wonder, I wonder if if newsrooms, and I'm definitely not the expert on this, have positioned themselves in a way to to feed what what I mean. I know that like Fox News, MSNBC, and stuff um, get their ratings based off how they display news and stuff to people, mm-hmm. um, um, which means probably not as much world stuff. Maybe inadvertently, maybe on purpose. I'm not sure. I don't know if it's a bad thing that U.S. news. Um, is focused on the U.S. because in a way it should be. Um, but I don't think you're off the mark in that like not a lot of people always know what's going on in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Unless it's viral or unless it affects us directly. Do you think there's a way that media syndicates like you highlighted or just people in general um, could be more active in understanding that information if it was necessary? Like I obviously... I'm aware because I took the time to go to BBC and read up on some different countries and things of that nature. But do you think there's a way that media syndicates in our country can one provide an ease, but two be more present in that kind of conversation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, of course it depends what the news is around the world and I'll give I'll give news organizations some credit here. Like I'll, most of them have world sections if you're going for print editions and whatnot, and and their world sections are fine. I don't always browse through them, but that seems pretty um, um, diverse. And like the New York Times has like a news bureau, like all they have news bureaus all over the world. There's one in India and whatnot. So there is mm-hmm. there they do have reporters and stuff um, in in places around the world. I just think that like not all the stuff that happens in the world on the front page. And again, going back to giving them credit here, uh, the U.S. has been absolutely insane the last four years. And there's like new news stories all the time. Um, But like we have some websites that are about politics specifically, and that's fine. But the other news sites that are kind of all around, like, like, let's hear some more stuff about the world. That isn't um, something that directly affects us sometimes. Yeah. Like... I think I think that's I think that's how you solve it. I think instead of focusing too much on Liz Cheney being ousted from Republicans because everybody's focusing on that. That's what happened during Myanmar. Thank you. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, that was a pretty big deal, so I can't blame him too much. But mm. I mean, it, it's actually really similar. That situation was really similar to January sixth, actually, except it worked for them in Myanmar, and it was the military, not the not Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, but. On back on topic here, um, uh, I mean, I think viewers also have some responsibility in this. Like the world matters, and we're in a globalized economy, whether you like it or not. It's important to at least scroll through the the world sections in these newspapers or whatever you're uh, uh, listening to or watching or whatnot. Yeah. Um. Uh. But I mean, news organizations maybe they they'll put um um. Oh, some kind of world news that doesn't directly affect us on the front page for a day or two. Like, just do that a little bit more often, I think. Granted, there isn't another insurrection that takes up the news stories for at least a month. At least a month. No, I I think I would agree. And I I think, too, you're just, like, hitting on some really great points I'm latching on to this time. But I I think, too, (laughs) there's an understanding of what impacts us, but there's a lack of depth for what are things that impact us on a second degree, right? We are in a globalized world. Countries in Africa failing will have impacts on imports, will have impacts on production, will have impacts on, um, as the administration says, human infrastructure and, and the growth of the global economy. So while it might not be a direct military connection or a direct investment connection, um, knowing that information is helpful because then when all of a sudden our stock market spikes or dips, we have a more fuller understanding and view that 
oh, this is happening in Africa, which is impacting these productions, blah, 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 blah. So I, I think, too, to your point, we as a society and we as a country have a space, too, to to really broaden our horizon and see that what impacts us is more than just what the narratives are that we hear all the time. Yeah, don't get me wrong. The U.S. has plenty of stuff it has to deal with right here on its home turf, and we should hear about that. But, you know, growing up, like, like my impression of what America is supposed to be is one that that is the good in the world mm -hmm. and that we do good things and help people, whether it's right here on our home turf or it's all over the world. And, like, these issues aren't, like... Like, like what you said, Africa going through this crisis right now, like a lot of places have been hit hard by COVID, but including America. But America also, as its place, as it has set itself up to be, and hmm. whether or not it has always lived up to those standards is a different conversation. But what it has set itself up to be is someone to help the world through this crisis and through any crisis and to make sure that there isn't any human rights abuses, for instance, um, so should there be more of a focus on this stuff? You know, I don't know what the Biden administration is. Maybe they are focusing on it and we're just uh, not super aware of that at the moment. But, uh, in the news media, yeah, I think, I think, I think the news media is a good place to, to represent or at least put pressure on our elected leaders of what the idea of America can be, um, in some ways, um, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and just simply telling the news around the world of things that are happening can be one of those ways. Okay, Terrell. So another thing that came out just today, Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on Tuesday <laughs> announced his opposition to a bipartisan inquiry into the January 6th attack on the Capitol by pro-Trump protesters. This is for the New York Times. He doesn't support this because, uh, and this is what he said, it wouldn't look at the political violence associated with the left. He's talking about there should be investigations into uh, violence by Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters. Were there, I'm going to pause you for a second, which I know is extremely disrespectful because we normally don't do that here. But <laughs> were there any Antifa or leftist mob that attacked the Capitol on January 6th. Terrell, the answer to your question is there is no evidence of that or really in any of the protests that happened around so the country. So if a commission is looking specifically at January 6th. They're going to look at pro-Trump supporters. Sure. And the people who egged them on. Trump and several sure. Republicans. What, what's the purpose of them looking at anything else if they have a very clear and narrow scope of there was an attack on the U.S. Capitol. Congress had to evacuate because people went inside of our Capitol building threatening to kill. I'm doing like hand motions, so that's why Caleb was laughing. Um, <laughs> it, oh, yeah. No, this is a serious issue. I'm not laughing at the uh, yes. people attacking the Capitol and trying to literally murder people. Why? Why do they need to investigate Antifa? Why do they need to investigate leftist mobs, as they would call it? Why do they need to waste time looking at Portland and everything that happened in Portland or look at the George Floyd marches where, hell, my name might end up on it because I flew to D.C. for one of the marches? Why do they need to spend time on that when the commission is on January 6th? Yeah. So, I mean, it's just it's just a continuance of Republicans um, um, creating, creating their own narratives and news stories, um, and lies about the election, uh, getting further into Trumpism and about, <laughs> it's, it's always both sides and, and their goal is, and I think it works actually, their, their strategy is it's both sides. Like, yeah, maybe we have, they don't even really admit that they have violence on their side, but What's the but, KKK to another KKK member? Well, their their argument is, oh, look at the left in Antifa. I don't even know where the heck Antifa came from. It's not an actual organization in the uh, U.S. It's an ideal. It's an idea. Which it can be threatening because they want an anarchist world, but I digress. But their goal, their goal with this, if they can create the illusion that there is violence on the left too, then the media 
which we have been talking about the media kind of a lot today, but the media will take that as both sides. Okay, Trump. There's there's bad and good on both sides. But there isn't a both sides in this scenario. There's we just already, not. We already let that argument go after Charlottesville where Donald Trump decided to say there were good people on both sides after someone ran over a female with a car yeah. because they were protest, protesting racial injustice. And they turned out to be a racist who supported Trump. Go figure. Um, yeah, no, it's just... But let's let's not... Let's not give them too much credit here. Also, like yes, I, I well, agree. I think I think they should because because Republicans are really good at messaging and driving a conversation but and it, media narratives. It's deeper than that. I oh yeah. I mean, but they're just multiple for it. multiple House representatives came out after the Cheney vote and said that the insurrection wasn't as bad as people were making it out to be. It was just people who it would have been like any other tour of the Capitol, mm-hmm. but the Democrats are playing it up. It, it's disgusting. The amount to which the Republican Party wants to gaslight America to make it seem like, one, the greatest coup in history ever occurred that resulted in tens of millions of illegal votes being cast for Joe Biden. It, I digress. And the fact that we all saw, we all we were all watching it. the television when... The certification happened and we were all annoyed because we knew there were going to be um, contestments of specific states just because they could. And we all saw as each barrier of defense failed and a mob of angry white, because that that matters in this conversation more than we're giving it credit, angry white conservatives marched in and Broke down the Capitol. A person died because they broke the glass after first responders and and police said, if you penetrate this, we will be forced to fire. A person died because they broke in. This isn't a normal tour. This isn't some tourist going to see the Capitol. This was an attack on democracy. And we can't pretend that there aren't two versions of justice in this country when I was in D.C. in, what, June, July for the the um, the Get Your Knee Off Our Necks march, the, the anniversary of the March on Washington with Martin Luther King. There were helicopters flying over the Lincoln and Washington Monument constantly flying low so that they could actually have a good look at us. Um, The White House was on complete lockdown. Congress wasn't allowed to move about normally. There were cops on every single corner. The entire city was locked down because a bunch of black and brown bodies were peacefully marching to say we're tired of seeing other black and brown bodies on TV being killed. Not once did we go to the Capitol. Not once did we go to the White House. Not once did we try to break into anything. But you know who has done that? Conservatives. Not just the conservative base that broke into the Capitol, but also the conservative administration that hired, not hired, instructed a bunch of police and SWAT and FBI agents to forcibly move protesters so this orange tarred shithole thing could take a picture of an upside down bible in front of a church like these are the things that we aren't yeah i'm ranting i need to calm down no i don't think you do because i I think i think you have ever every reason to be upset and angry at what republicans are trying to do here and you know why they're doing it because their base are those people. That's their base. What's a KK member to, or what's the KKK to a KKK member? Exactly. So as our listeners know, we love to test out new segments here at Dangerously Likely. And one thing I'm really excited that we did, Caleb, is we invested into other parts of our lives, right? We really appreciate and 
enjoy music. And we made playlists on Spotify of new music that are coming out in the year we want to highlight or that we really enjoy that we want our listeners to hear. And with the introduction of Torrance, we started talking about specific groups that have either made an impact on us or that we just think people should um, listen to. So I, I'm excited to just have a segment where we kind of highlight some groups very similar to how Torrance did it during our variety hour that are important or have had some musical inclinations that are huge and then kind of give our listeners an opportunity to check them out by visiting our Spotify and Apple page um, to look at some playlists to kind of catch out what we're dangerously likely to listen to. So do you have any artists that come to mind? Oh yeah, I have uh, one highlight today that uh, I have really enjoyed, especially over the past um, several months. And that artist is Glass Animals for me. Like Glass Animals a lot. Glass Animals is fantastic. They're out of the UK. And um, I especially really like, they came out with a new album. I mean, those of you who know Glass Animals have probably heard the classics, Black Mamba, Gooey, um, maybe even the song Youth, which I'm a big fan of on their second album. Um, But they came out with a uh, new album, um, back towards towards the end of 2020 um, called Dreamland. And Dreamland is kind of a really introspective album. The inspiration behind it, um, the lead singer doesn't usually sing about himself. He does a lot in this album, but the inspiration behind it specifically is uh, their drummer um, was riding his bike back in 2018 and got hit by a truck. It was in the hospital, and it was one of those situations where, where he survived, but uh, they had to uh, he had to relearn how to walk and talk and all of that stuff. And mm-hmm. those kind of things really affect not only obviously the person, but affect the people around him too, which is the band Class Animals. And so, Dreamland kind of turned into like that kind of introspection of of. Uh, trauma and those kind of experiences that come from it. And, and he even notes that like thinking about that kind of stuff, put him in dark places, but he felt like it was necessary to, to think about that in, in kind of what life is about. So I'm going to highlight one of my favorite songs from the, I, I honestly like the entire album. I think it's really great. And um, I encourage all of you to, to check it out, Dreamland. Um, the the song that I am highlighting today is called "It's Also Incredibly Loud," and I really like this song specifically. It just kind of made me. It stuck with me. Um, I I watched the mu- I remember watching the music video to it. I don't usually watch music videos on songs, but sometimes I'm kind of bored and it just happens. <laughs> they come out with their Dreamland album. I really like. It's all so incredibly loud. And this song is kind of like one of those ramp up songs, starts quiet and then slowly just gets more intense and more intense until the end where it kind of like climaxes. And I was watching the YouTube video for this and the lead singer is sitting on a diving board and he's just standing on this diving board. And as the song gets, gets more, more intense and more intense, um, he eventually finally jumps into the water but in slow motion as the music grows as intense as that as it gets in the song like in full clothes and everything and i didn't really understand it so i was reading about some stuff and i'm gonna read a quote from um the lead singer and his name's dave this song is about saying something that you know is, is going to really hurt somebody. Something they'll never forgive you for and that will probably make them hate you. In the three seconds right after you say those words. That silence that feels like the loudest fucking thing ever. I began with a particular moment in mind, but then I just started thinking back on all the times I've been, well, maybe not a dick, but close. All the times I've hurt somebody and sitting with what that felt like. It's quite abstract compared to the rest of the songs on the record because I wanted it to apply to a lot of situations. And that really just stuck with me. Just that you tell somebody something that's going to hurt them in just kind of the three seconds afterwards of 
of the intensity of what they might say, how they'll react, uh, 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 what will happen to you. And all I can really say about that moment is it's just also incredibly loud. Very nice. That was clever. Um, <laughs> kind of similar to your highlight, my, my artist of the week, honestly, my artist of 2019 till now, um, is an artist by the name of Grayson Chance. For those of y'all who were middle school nerds like me, you might remember a song called Cheyenne, um, that he performed or unfriend you. He was essentially seen as a potential rival to Justin Bieber, right? Like young kid, youthful voice seemed to have a strong ability to, to just really tell a story. And then he kind of fell off the radar. Um, and in 2019, he came out with the album Portraits, which was his opportunity to reintroduce himself. Um, the reason he stands out so much for me is his journey through sexuality very much mirrors mine um, as an individual who, and he talks about this so well with Cheyenne, wrote the song to be big in the industry, but every time he hears it, he hates it because he felt like he was lying to himself. And it was with Portraits that he truly was able to reintroduce himself and say, this is who he is and this is what he he hoped to project. Um, and the song that I would recommend anyone listen to, and when you check out our playlist, it'll definitely be on there, is um, Black on Black. It is a very, very aggressive song that is a little sexual, but it was his opportunity to own the fact that he is gay and he really tells about the the challenges of being attracted to um, a male and having posters in your room and just the taboo-ness of it while also just fully embracing it. So if you get a second, I would recommend that song. You know what to do. Take us on a tangent. Terrell, this week my tangent is going to be very simple. Um, it's about Elon Musk. And I'm not here to, to, to trash talk or whatnot. I'm, I'm here to uh, not even marvel at his power. I think that's the wrong way to put it here. Just to simply state that Elon Musk can open his mouth and say anything he wants about any cryptocurrency and they will go up and down and bend to his will because his falling are people who are invested in that stuff. And, uh, you know, there's not really any evidence to say that he's making billions off doing that. I think he already has a lot of money and he's just bored. And through his boredom, uh, completely changes whole markets. <laughs> did you watch him on SNL? I did. Thoughts? I didn't watch it. <laughs> um... You know, there's all this controversy that like, oh, why are you having Elon Musk on SNL? Like, oh, like billionaires shouldn't exist and whatnot. And I'm not really here to refute those claims. I, I just kind of watch SNL for the enjoyment of comedy. And most of the time, I don't really care who the host is. Um, I didn't really care that Elon Musk was the host, to be honest. But I watched it. And as with every episode of SNL, it was had its funny moments and it had its not funny moments. And I wouldn't say it was anything special for an episode. Um, but it, I mean, it had its moments. And then there was also, this actually kind of goes back to what, <laughs> to what I was saying is he made some jokes about Dogecoin, like it being a hustle and stuff. And they were jokes, but like just the power, he knows what he says matters. And Dogecoin fell when he said that. And um, again, I, I don't know if I'm criticizing anything or whatnot, but that's just kind of the power that he has. And it's just kind of interesting to watch from afar as someone who does not uh, uh, invest in crypto. Anyways, Terrell, <laughs> what's your tangent? I need to understand cryptocurrency more. I definitely get lost there. That's fair. It's um, It's a little complicated, but a little research goes a long way, I think. My tangent is the same tangent I've had for like the last 
18 plus episodes. The conservative party is, is frustrating. I don't know how to worry what I'm thinking. I, I recently had a lot of conversations with individuals and I've come to realize that conservatives are on a hunt right now to be oppressed. That's the easiest way I can put it. There is this egregious need to speak about how toxic and how awful cancel culture is while at the same time... Showing that themselves. Yes. <laughs> to anyone that doesn't agree with them. But then saying, oh, we're being oppressed by that. I mean, there... I don't know if you saw this, but Chrissy Teigen, who I don't personally like either, um, had her entire line dropped from Target because some conservative girl and her got into it in um, over Twitter a long time ago. And... In that conversation, she highlighted and had mentioned that um, the girl should kill herself or something. I don't remember. And now Target's pulled her line because everyone's calling for Chrissy Teigen to be canceled for it. And people like Candace Owens were so happy to see that it happened. And I had a really harsh conversation with a friend where I reflected, did she deserve to be canceled for that? I, I really struggle with her being canceled for something that society had pretty much made normal at that point i can name multiple times that i've told someone that i'm not saying it's a good thing to say but i i can say that our culture is in a space where it was comfortable and okay to if you were mad at someone or even if it was a really good friend you were joking you would say like oh kill yourself not good very bad we've come a long way we've come a long way but like but like just to your tangent i i don't know when did we like forget that like people don't always say the right thing when we forget that like people can learn you know like like is that the right thing to say no like probably shouldn't but like to an extent it's been normalized and so some people are going to say it and if you're uncomfortable with that make sure they know instead of assuming that they're the absolute worst person in the world and trying to ruin their lives like this is not that big of a deal like people can learn and we can figure things out but also, are we canceling someone because they deserve to be canceled? I think that that is the crux of the issue. The conservative base likes to say Democrats are, are canceling conservatives because they want to set the narrative, right? Not taking onus that they could be doing something wrong. Like Matt Gates should be canceled because he's a pedophile. Yeah. But Chrissy <laughs> yes. Teigen, again, owning and saying, I think what what she said is wrong is society canceling her because we're having a harsh realization that we were toxic from the, the start? Are we having an issue with uh, Justin Timberlake and the push to have him canceled because of the Free Britney movement? Not because he he was right or wrong, but because we as a, a society are owning, we played into that narrative for multiple years. We made it so that we cared who Britney Spears slept with. We made it so paparazzi got more money for getting pictures with her with guys like are we canceling people because we as a society don't like the reflection we're seeing in the mirror and on top of that how did this specific party that is against critical race theory that feels uh, learning the real history of america is diminishing america how did they all of a sudden co-opt and feel this need to be oppressed why why do they need to feel that every time someone tells them that they're wrong it's an attack on them as a person and now they can't they can't be any better why do they feel the need to try to make people of color racist for calling them out for saying the things that made the person of color feel bad i i have struggled with in the last week or so and over every pod that we have, that factor of what good is this cancel culture? Is it really doing what it should be? Or is it in a space that is uh, allowing and causing harm for um, individuals because they acted in what they thought was societal norm and now we're moving to a new societal norm? And also... Why does this conservative party just feel the need to be oppressed when individuals who have been oppressed for years and generations are literally just asking for equality? Terrell, I think those are all really great questions that I think we as society and whoever listens to this podcast, including ourselves, should ponder on and reflect about and really think hard about that. I really like the question about um, we don't like what we see in the mirror. 
Is that really what it's about? Anyways, exciting update from uh, the Dangerously Likely team. We are now on Amazon Music and Audible um, for any of those that... For any of you that uh, uh, wanted to listen to our podcast and have been settling for using uh, pretty much any platform that isn't those two, I apologize, but it is there now. So be sure to check it out. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. We're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.